Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 9th, 2009, and my guest is Arnold Kling, who blogs at EconLog on the EconLive website and is the author of two new books, Unchecked and Unbalanced, and From Poverty to Prosperity, Intangible Assets, Hidden Liabilities, and the Lasting Triumph over Scarcity, co-authored with Nick Schultz. Arnold, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Arnold, our topic for today is prosperity, and unfortunately, we'll probably talk about some poverty as well. You call your approach to growth issues and, and the issues of economic development uh, and the economy writ large, economics 2.0. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, this is the economics that you don't hear about, first of all, in the mainstream media, and also, oddly enough, you don't typically hear much about it if you take an undergraduate macroeconomics curriculum and, and maybe even a graduate macroeconomics curriculum as well. The... Uh, the traditional economics is all about allocating a given amount of resources, and you'll even see in textbooks the idea that you're supposed to, uh, you know, people have uh, unlimited wants, limited resources, and the economic problem is to allocate scarce resources among competing ends. Guns versus butter. Yeah. It's class- horrible textbook version of that. Yeah, yeah. All, all the classic story. Um, and what this is about, and again, it, it's, you know, I'm going to say it, it's not in mainstream, so I'm going to make these people, make it sound like this is some, di- you know, weird rogue view, but of the ten economists that we interview in the book, four of them won Nobel Prizes, and the others are all highly prestigious. So this this is a prestigious view, but it's just not widely disseminated for whatever reason. People like to talk about scarcity. Uh, it's really the kind of the flip side of scarcity is a story of abundance. First of all, just in terms of measurement, measuring the standard of living uh, and how it's changed over time and how in, a, in some sense it's changed very suddenly. You can argue that from, uh, you know, the... From the time when you know people first you know formed civilizations until around 1800, the standard of living changed relatively little uh, compared to a dramatic improvements in the standard of living since then. So you know, roughly speaking, if you if people lived on the equivalent of 150 dollars a year uh, up until you know around 1500 or 1600 or so. And then you get from 1800 to now, you, you people go from let's say a couple hundred dollars a year to eight thousand dollars a year. This would be on a worldwide average. Of course, in the U.S., it's you know, more like you know, forty thousand dollars a year. So you get this tremendous uh, acceleration in growth in the standard of living. So just as a fact, uh, out there. Uh, and then the, the interesting thing is, where did that come from? Because the traditional economics says, well, you've got these scarce resources. Um, the only place that could come from is people uh, forgoing 
consumption today to get consumption tomorrow to, by accumulating capital. And yet, clearly, we've been able to go way beyond what we could get just by accumulating capital. And so that brings up the intangible factors that we talk about, and the, the main intangible factor being ideas, innovations. Now, of course, some of that is produced by capital. It's pro- those ideas, you know, I think what's fascinating uh, about this issue of how much we teach and understand these topics is you know, I think the average undergraduate economics major has some idea that technology or innovation has something to do with our standard of living. But we don't teach our students much about the texture of that, which is a lot of what your book's about. And we don't teach them where it comes from. I think when we say the word or when you use the word ideas, it tends to cause people to think, oh, well, just someone's thinking and they think of an idea and that gets added to the pile of ideas. But of course, it's more than that. Uh, There's a massive focused effort at some (laughs) ideas and not others, right? There's a massive research and development effort in the private sector and a non-trivial amount coming from the public sector as well. Yeah, the uh, one phrase that I think comes up a lot in sort of in economics 2.0 is trial and error. Uh, So, you know, think of uh, the way pharmaceutical companies operate. They literally will just try a bunch of different molecules and see how those molecules will affect um, different symptoms in different tissues. And then if they find some that they think are promising, then they'll maybe try them on animals. And then if they work on animals and if they're safe on animals, then they'll go on to human trials. So there's this huge trial and error process involved in innovation. And we also believe that that's true with uh, entrepreneurship in general. You know, we all saw, you know, 10 years ago the dot-com uh, experience where there was, you know, all sorts of new companies formed to try all sorts of things, and there were some spectacular failures like Pets.com that was going to deliver pet food to your door, but there were a couple of spectacular successes like Amazon. And at the time, they weren't, and you couldn't have predicted which one was going to make it. They were all losing money. <laughs> right. If, if, if uh, yeah, if you'd tried to predict, uh, I mean, if you'd if you'd been able to predict, you'd have been very rich because uh, you would have stayed out of the ones that failed and only invested in the ones that succeeded. But it, ex ante, it was a trial and error process, and uh, the ones that, that succeeded and the ones that even now are succeeding uh, are producing spectacular wealth. Yeah, trial and error is uh, is underrated. It's also uh, difficult to model. It doesn't lend itself to uh, formalization very well, which may be part of the reason this isn't as commonly uh, taught as it would otherwise be. Yeah, one of the people we interview in the book is Joel. I don't even know how to pronounce his last oh, name. Mokir. Mokir. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had him on the show. No, I haven't, but I, th- I do. I think I know how to pronounce his name, but go ahead. Good, good. <laughs> I think it's Mokir. Mokir. Um, and he talks about the fact that because you know, this is stuff that cannot be predicted. Uh, yeah, you really cannot model it. You really cannot forecast uh, the way economic growth will take place because uh, the uh, these ideas get used in ways that were they're not anticipated, and so things happen that were not anticipated. Contrast that view. Uh, let's 
we've we haven't talked about this in a while in the program. It goes if you go back to the archives, we'll put some links up. In the early days of the program, I was I focused a lot of shows on this issue of growth and talked to a lot of people about how growth uh, was once taught at graduate school. And you um, you went to MIT. Robert Solo is really the premier growth theorist of of the generation that when we were in graduate school. So talk about how, say, in the 60s and 70s, even a little before, how economists thought about growth and how that's changed. Well, I mean, it's even true now. I mean, my daughter's in college and has, you know, had to grind through these solo model calculations. And it's a story of capital. It's a story of capital accumulation and, you know, you know, as for an economy as a whole, you know, you defer some consumption today in order to accumulate capital, and that's how you grow. And there are a number of things wrong with that model. And Solo himself was found the most important problem, which was empirically, capital accumulation doesn't account for uh, very much of the different of the increase in standard of living over time. Uh, you know, maybe on the order of a quarter, maybe less. Or the differences across countries as well, right? But the differences across countries uh, are not also not accounted for ter- terribly well by capital differences. In fact, one of the things that got us sort of going to write this book was a report that came out under the auspices of the World Bank, which did a um, a growth accounting analysis of the standard of living of the in different countries, and they converted it into wealth terms. So they said, instead of just saying, what's the income of the U.S. versus some other country, they, they said, what's the wealth? And um, in that measure, the, <coughs> the average citizen in a very well-developed country has over $400,000 of wealth. That is sort of lifetime income, you might think of that. Uh, and most of that wealth is intangible. It is not accounted for. It's not by, gold coins, and it's not. It's not accounted for by the resources of the country. It's not accounted for by the capital of the country. It's all intangible. It's things like human capital, your education, but it also you have this odd phenomenon that they show for some countries negative uh, intangible wealth. And how can you have negative intangible wealth? And the answer there is that their institutions are so harmful. Think of um, you know countries like North Korea, um, that the institutions cause so much harm that uh, they can actually pr- they produce less than what you'd think they'd be able to produce just based on their labor and capital that they the institutions actually subtract output and wealth from the country. Let's step back one step further and talk about capital, which is a phrase that economists uh, bandy about very loosely. You know, the standard view of a country's resources would be labor, that's people, uh, raw materials, st- you know, iron, uh, iron ore, uh, gold, other assets of that physical kind. And capital, by capital, we mean what, traditionally in economics? Traditionally, capital is uh, produced goods that can be used to produce other goods. So I think of things like factories, machine tools, 
office buildings, computers. There's equip- equipment and plant that is used to produce other goods. And the in the economics 2.0 approach, uh, knowledge, which is could be embodied in human beings and is embodied as well in physical machinery, but also has an independent existence. Knowledge is really uh, driving an enormous amount of our productivity, where knowledge includes know-how. It's it's not facts, right? Yeah, it's all it, it's everything that people, isn't those other things. That, that is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a huge. If you start to think about it, knowledge is just you know from knowing you know how to prevent mal- um, uh, dysentery. Uh, you know this, that's an example Paul Romer uses. You know, if you yeah, use it on this program, we're going to yeah, as well. Yeah, so you can, you can link to that. But you have put a little sugar in water, and you can you know you can present, prevent dysentery. Um, Walmart knowing how to operate its logistics system, you know, is worth a tremendous amount. Uh, it's you know increased our GDP and our wealth a lot, and that's you know that's know-how. Uh, companies are constantly trying to learn and improve and come up with better ways of doing things. So knowledge can be everything from scientific knowledge, really abstract knowledge, to just workers learning, figuring out how to do their jobs a little better uh, on the, on an assembly line or in a in a store. It's kind of strange that it's taken economics a few hundred years to start thinking about these intangible assets. Now, part of it, of course, is that they weren't as important two hundred years ago as a lot of physical capital. But I, I think it's um, I think some folks listening out there who aren't trained economists would go, "Well, duh." Sure, figuring out stuff is really important, and most of us are in jobs. You know, in this job that I'm in right now, where we're doing this podcast, there is some physical capital. There's some microphones, and there's a there's a recording device, and there's a flash card, and there's a server that delivers the the podcast to folks, and that's all physical capital. It's obvious that the intangible part of this podcast, which includes trivial but important things in a way uh, such as how to upload the file into the server right that that's not unimportant uh, but that's a little piece of know-how I've mastered right a little trivial piece of know-how but still important uh, trivial in the sense it's not hard to do but most of what we're producing right here you and I in this conversation is in our brains can't be measured only can be measured really in meaningless ways like how many hours did did I spend? preparing for this podcast, you know, you wouldn't really wouldn't call that an input into the production function of this experience. Yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, once you start thinking in those terms, you really think about the economy differently. And that's the point that Nick and I try to make about this book, is that people really will think about the economy and economics differently once they concentrate and focus on this. I mean, one, you know, one example of this that, uh, uh, there's this one-liner from George Mason economist Garrett Jones that people, most people today, most workers, don't make widgets. They build organizational capital. Most people who work in companies are really trying to add to the capacity of that company to do something new or to control the risks of the company or to do 
um, you know, something that's generic, they're not actually assembling things by hand or, or making new uh, new output. And that's a yeah, that creates a very different environment for something like macroeconomics, which assumes that everybody's this homogeneous, unskilled labor. And all capital is K. Yeah. It's homogeneous capital. Um, now, one of the things that it encourages you to think about differently is the traditional sources of economic prosperity that I think a lot of people are still very attached to, manufacturing being the most the most dramatic one. So in the political debate, you often hear, um, if you spend too much time on Capitol Hill, you'll often hear, well, you can't get, we can't get rich doing each other's laundry. And so the idea would be we used to make stuff. Now we have a service economy, and services are really going to ultimately impoverish us because doing laundry doesn't make you rich. Doesn't, there's nothing tangible about it. It's just cleaning stuff in this case. And what's the answer of Economics 2.0 to that to that? worry uh, the answer at the for a consumer end is of course you're going to get uh, better and better goods and services at lower and lower cost through innovation so you know in the case of laundry um, you know the economics 1.0 story is isn't it great that you can send your shirt out to be ironed by somebody else so you can spend you can use your comparative advantage to work on something else and the economics 2.0 answer is, uh, well, that's great that you can send your uh, shirt out to be ironed by somebody else, but haven't you heard of permanent press? You know, somebody came up with an idea that allows you to get, eliminate the job of ironing shirts altogether. And that kind of innovation is what, you know, creates abundance, uh, certainly from a consumer point of view. And then the what you'll get from people worried about that is well gosh what what kind of work are people going to do if if you if you put the people who do who press shirts out of business by doing permanent press and you know the answer has to be that people are going to have to, going to learn to do um, these sort of building organizational capital type jobs where they are coming up with new ideas or helping new products uh, reach the market and things like that. They're going to be using their brains a lot more. I think there's a risk of, of implying that we're all going to end up being consultants for, you know, consulting firms. And the the permanent press story, and, and then, of course, the new version of permanent press is the no iron, 100% cotton shirt, because permanent press was synthetic. That was the way they solved the having to have somebody iron your clothes. And now you can have 100% cotton that breathes and have no iron, which I think is a wonderful um, innovation personally but I think I, I, I want to hone in on a little piece of this because it you know the the traditional worry about innovation is that people get replaced by machines and what you're really saying is that people get replaced by ideas and it, you know one way to see it in our, in our daily life it's happening right now is it used to be that if you were on a trip up the East Coast, you're going to New York or Boston from the D.C. area or vice versa, you're going to pay tolls with these booths that are pushed put along the highway. And there's people standing in those booths. It doesn't seem like to be a very interesting job. But they're people who are paid and made a living, collecting quarters or in some cases a few dollars. They've now been replaced, many of them, not all of them, but many of them replaced by a little device you put on your dashboard or in your window that – you know, easy easy pay that uh, easy pass. Excuse me, is the is one of them that 
you know, measures this electronically so you don't have a person. So that person gets put out of work. But it would really be misleading to say that the person, that there aren't as many, to- and of course they're not always put out of work. It's just that those jobs are not the opportunities that people coming in the job market have. But it would be misleading to say that that the easy pass transmitter put the person out of work. It's really the extraordinary set of software behind that little gadget that is doing the work. And I think that's really uh, what's important about this transition you're talking about. Do you agree? Yeah, that it's the you know somebody had to come up with the concept of you know we could uh, get people through toll booths faster if they could, if they had an electronic transponder, and the technology is here now to use that kind of transponder. And wouldn't it be great if we had the same transponder usable in Maryland as New York? Um, so all those ideas had to be uh, had to be put together and then and then implemented. And that gets us really to the next a piece of this that we haven't talked about yet. That's that's in Paul Romer's work uh, a lot, and that you write about in the book, which is the non-rivalrous aspect. So we're producing this good called Econ Talk. One more listener. Eventually, eventually enough listeners will put pressure on our brand, bandwidth, but in general, it's not rivalrous. As many people can enjoy Econ Talk as as want to, and please go out and tell your friends um, to, so that we can increase that. But the same is true with the, with the transponder. You need the additional device. The physical device is, is, is an economics 1.0 device in a sense. Everybody's going to have one in their car, so you have to get another one. But the network of people that are communicating and paying uh, – is scalable in a rather extraordinary way with, and very efficiently. Yeah, well, th- we talk about, if you think about the nature of hardware versus software, you know, if I have a computer, you know, it's hard for you to use my computer. You certainly can't use the same keyboard at the same time I'm using it. But if I have software and you have another copy of the software, there's no reason why you and I both can't be running spreadsheets at the same time. And so a lot of what we're talking about as economics 2.0 is stuff that operates like software. That is, it isn't, as you said, it's not rivalrous. Um, many people can use it at once. It can be replicated cheaply and so on. So if, if I come up with a, a better idea for running a fast food restaurant, you can copy that idea. You can see, wow, you know, he, he arranged the, uh, the people this way and divided the work this way, and I, I can do the same thing. Or he created this kind of contracts, and I, I can do the same thing. Uh, you know, one of the big challenges uh, that people have is when somebody comes up with what's called a business process patent. You know, like Amazon at one point wanted to patent the idea of being able to order with one click. Um, you know, why? Why should they be? Why should they be able to do that and no one else be able to do that? Just because they thought of it, that it creates uh, tension. Of course, so, you want them to have an incentive to think of it, so that's the tension, also, right? Yeah, and uh, there's there's a, a fair discussion in the book of this issue of intellectual property because it, it, if you get to the point where intangible stuff matters more and ideas matter more, you're going to be confronted increasingly with value that is not embedded just in hardware or in physical stuff, but value that's in ideas, and that immediately raises issues of, well, how should intellectual property be handled and so on. And 
I don't think we have a conclusive one-size-fits-all answer for that. I mean, there are people who, who might make that claim, but um, my view is that you know there are some situations where clearly a lot of work goes into developing the idea, and yet the idea could easily be copied. So, again, the case of a pharmaceutical where you go through years of trial and error and you come up with this molecule that works and you are ready to market the molecule and then somebody else could come along and just say, oh, okay, well, I don't have to do all the work, but I can copy that molecule and I can sell it for a lot cheaper. So you think that that intellectual property problem is is somewhat difficult. Whereas something like Amazon's one-click ordering, I, I don't think it took them years and years of trial and error and painful research to come up with it. That's probably something you could come up with in a couple of days or an afternoon or maybe in a, in a five-minute brainstorming. And you wouldn't want to give that years of, uh, of, pro- of legal protection, at least in my view. The hardware-software distinction, talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned the non-rivalrous part, but I found that to be a very uh, useful way to think about uh, issues of growth and issues of, of poverty, particularly when you talk about bugs in the software. So t- talk about that metaphor a little bit more. Okay, so there, there are two main stories that we're trying to deal with. One is why is the standard of living so much higher than it was 200 years ago. And the software part of that story is ideas, and we've been discussing that. And the other question, but the question that raises, if, if ideas are easy, easily copied, easily replicated, that's our story, and that's how, you know, how growth just takes off because ideas just start building on each other and ideas are easily copied, and so you can get lots of growth without investing necessarily lots of resources or the or it doesn't we don't use up resources when you're when you're using idea when you're using ideas but then that makes the other issue of the differences in the standard of living across countries even more puzzling you know why is it that north korea doesn't use the same ideas that we use um you know, why is it that you know, Mugabe's country doesn't use the same ideas that, that we use? And then the answer is we give is another aspect of software, which we could think of as analogous to the operating system. You know, communism being a different operating system than capitalism, or Mugabe's dictatorship being a different operating system than a more democratic society. And there clearly are problems with certain operating systems, that they really mess up their, the ability of the uh, economy to operate. So we describe those operating systems as being extremely buggy compared to the operating systems that work better, like those in Hong Kong or Singapore or the United States. And what are some of the bugs? Uh, so the bugs would include uh, things that you've, I'm sure we've talked about on, on other podcasts, things like uh, poorly enforced property rights, the government confiscating wealth so there's very little incentive to create it, um, and the government just dictating all aspects of the economy, something like North Korea. I want to. You mentioned uh, poorly enforced property rights. Property rights in the United States have changed physical property rights and probably intellectual property rights. They've changed quite a bit in the last 50 years. There's, there's a lot more, I would, I would argue, there's a lot more 
uncertainty about the economic environment. Uh, certainly in today's world, we see a lot of that uncertainty uh, with how regulations are going to go. But just thinking about uh, many, many countries in the developed world do lots of redistribution, do lots of high taxes. They seem to thrive. Um, why is it that, say, in Scandinavia, even though government or much of Europe, there's lots of government and it's big, they seem to use ideas. I don't know how many they produce relative to the United States. That's an interesting argument. But certainly, if you if you think about the transition over time in the developed world, not the undeveloped, the developing world, but among rich nations, you could argue that a rule of law is diminished. There's more confiscation. There's there's less certainty about what you get to keep. How come we're doing so well? Well, I think several economists in the book, uh, in our book, point out that we don't know what the optimal institutional structure is. Um, we do a lot of things in this country. We, you know, if you think about it, we for a long time have heavily regulated or heavily had heavy government involvement in many sectors. You can talk about housing, agriculture, education, health. And imagine you were a, you know, a startup country, somehow you know, starting up from scratch, and you're looking at the United States as your shining example. Well, which, which of those regulations should they copy? Should they have our same agricultural policy? Should they have our same housing policy? Should they have our same financial regulation policy? So which, which of these policies should they copy? Uh, the fact like, is we You could argue all of them because look how well we're doing. And you, could argue, and you could argue none of them right. because from an, as, if you, you can, as an economist, I can offer some pretty powerful critiques of all of them. So it's, it's a very difficult uh, thing to, to, to settle. Uh, what are the optimal institutions? I, I think all we can conclude is that we know that uh, sort of communist dictatorship and allocation of resources uh, doesn't work, and that we, there are so many examples. Uh, and one, you know, one of the exhibits we list from our, in our book, which we borrow from Brad DeLong, compares things like Cuba versus Mexico, North Korea versus South Korea. You could also have gone back and compared East Germany to West Germany. So you, you, I think we know that communism doesn't work. For the average person. For, yeah. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but, the, um, but in terms of the, all these other institutional issues, I think there's plenty of room for controversy. I think there, there are lots of economists who would say that uh, you know, government-provided universal education is a great thing. It's a, a necessary thing for development. And there are those of us who say, well, at this point, this government-provided universal education may be holding the United States back. And, of course, how you feel about those different issues might vary over time. You might f feel one way about them when the economy is relatively developed versus when it's relatively undeveloped. But I, I think it raises an interesting casual bit of economic history that I, I find it fascinating that we don't have um, – a very decisive answer to. I think if you talk to folks about the evolution of the U.S. standard of living between, say, 1880 and the present, let's take let's take the century 1880 to 1980, um, when America goes through industrialization, uh, starts leaving the agricultural sector behind due to innovation and productivity. There's a lot of of improvement in standard of living, interrupted by the Great Depression, and then re 
restarted afterward with with pr- pretty big success. Um, there's a bunch of people out there who say, well, if it weren't for all those regulations, that would never have happened. And other people argue, uh, if it weren't for those regulations, the growth would have been even greater. We don't have any way to evaluate those two claims, I don't think, other than prior knowledge yeah. and bias. I think it, yeah, no, those are very difficult issues because you know we don't run too many controlled experiments. That's why people jump on, let's say, East Germany versus West Germany. It looks like a natural experiment, or North Korea versus South Korea looks like a natural experiment. Um, and you just have to. I think it's unfortunate. You're just going to have to use intuition, and you know maybe one of the uh, issues that this can bring up is the idea of having more trial and error in terms of government. Uh, that's that's a separate book, uh, but uh, at least one person who's read this book immediately reacted by thinking, wow, that uh, since trial and error seems to be the way that we learn and grow uh, for economic, you know, in the economy, that's how businesses get better, why 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 wouldn't that be a better way for government to operate? But again, that's an, that's another book. Yeah, mostly the worry would be trial and mostly error. I guess would be the concern. The, whether you can weed it out, uh, we, we weed it out in the marketplace. You know, the Edsel doesn't last for very long. I use in my book the example of Corfam, this miracle shoe fiber fabric that was going to change the world. And and just like the ironing example, you were going to have to polish your shoes anymore. That's why it didn't breathe very well, looked kind of fake, and people didn't like it, so it dropped out of the marketplace. The the ability of government to um, deal with that is a, tr- a little trickier. Yeah, well, that's, I think, a, a main theme in all of my writing is that markets are very efficient trial and error vehicles because there's a, as you say, there's a profit and loss system, and when companies lose money, the the innovations that they tried fall by the wayside, and the ones that make money survive. And in government, we don't have that equivalent thing. I don't know if you you saw this just about a week ago. Atul Gawande, who writes for the New Yorker, yeah, I was thinking about bringing it up, but I, I, before you bring it up, just remember that we don't take any position on pending legislation here <laughs> on the uh, on the econ talk sh- program. Well, but go ahead. <laughs> but what, what Gawande said is that the key to a better health care system is more trial and error on the part of government. Yeah. And I just cringed when I saw that because I think government is a is the most ineffective trial and error mechanism out there. And the market is such an effective trial and error mechanism. It just, it, I, it just my jaw dropped when I read that. Yeah, mine did too. Yeah, he's an interesting guy, but um, that was just, I thought, an unusual claim. Um before we go on to um, some related issues, I want to ask you about something that, that was came up in passing, and I, I think it mystifies a lot of folks, which is the role of savings. Um, in the old days, the economics 1.0 story was to grow, you need to put aside money today. You have to save. Without savings, you can't have growth. And I want to argue I think that's still true. Uh, the nature of what the money gets devoted to isn't what we used to talk about solely. We used to talk about you don't consume the uh, 
you know, the apple, you save it so that the seeds. It's a stupid example. Never mind. But you don't you you, you don't consume every. You don't use up everything that's around today. You set some of it aside so it'll grow larger tomorrow. A tree would be a better example. You don't chop down the tree and make a table. You let it grow over time, and then you get a house. So that kind of economic productivity was one view of the relationship between savings and growth. And I think when we talk about these intangible ideas, there's a tendency to say, well, we don't have to just make houses. We can make ideas, and ideas don't use up uh, current consumption as much. But as I suggested a little at the beginning, I want to get your – I didn't really hear your answer to this. You still have to make sacrifices today to get stuff tomorrow. It's just not the same. Or do you disagree with that? No, I agree. There, there are two types of uh, saving that are important. One – or in, uh, one is in terms of developing your own human capital, because a big component of this intangible is uh, people's own knowledge. And a, an interesting question now is whether the people who are setting aside money to pay for college are going to get a good return out of it. Um, and that, that's an interesting issue. Um, so there's human capital. And the other is that this, a lot of these ideas do require research efforts. If nothing else, they require the trial and error. So we're going to, you know, a bu- you know, to start a business, even in today's environment, still costs some money uh, to start a business. And then some of these businesses are going to fail. And those failures are, in some sense, part of the saving that you're, or part of the sacrifice that you make in order to get progress. So going back to your opening comment, uh, there is still scarcity at a point in time. It's just that the dynamic story is uh, equally or more important, right? At a point in time, you do have to – there is a trade-off. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely true. The scarcity has not been eliminated. It's just that we uh, definitely have been able to grow and grow more than what you would think would be possible if the only way you could increase – Output would be by setting aside output today to get output tomorrow. The uh, the ideas have have expanded the uh, our wealth and our uh, standard of living. Now you talk to a lot of folks in the book, uh, really interesting people, and their insights are, are fascinating on on growth and, and poverty. What do you think we've learned as economists over the last fifty years? Um, and what do you think we still need to learn? I think what we have learned is the importance of these intangibles. Uh, again, the importance of ideas of what we call recipes, uh, knowing how to do things. And the fact that once you've learned how to do something, that knowledge doesn't depreciate the way capital depreciates. Um, so you, you, there are all sorts of reasons why you get sort of positive returns, increasing returns, abundance, and so on. Um, I think we've learned at a rough level to believe that institutional differences uh, help explain differences in standard of living across countries. What we haven't learned is in a detailed level which institutions can work. And there's, a, I think, a latent controversy. In fact, some people who've read the book have, have brought that controversy to the surface over whether the same institutions will work in different cultures. 
So if you look at North Korea versus South Korea, you can say, well, it's it's a, it's institutional differences. Of, you know that they came from the same culture, and yet you know South Korea has a standard of living that's you know fifteen to twenty times higher than North Korea. So clearly, it's institutional differences. Um, but if you said to me, well, could, do you think that the project of going to Iraq and installing a what you know our idea of the right institutions is going to work there i would say no i think that there there are too many cultural problems in order to do that so that's a so that there's a question so at a very basic level i don't think we know necessarily the relative role of culture in institutions or how long an institutional a new institutional environment has to be in place in order to change culture and then we don't know at a detailed level which institutions. Again, you know, the, the examples of all the different regulatory policies in agriculture, finance, and education, and so on that we have in the U.S., which of those are optimal, which are suboptimal, which are better than what exists in other countries, which are worse. So there's a lot we don't know about institutional economics. So where does that leave us for helping or uh, for countries that want to help themselves to get out of poverty. Um, it, to me, it suggests obviously a very cautious, uh, tempered approach, uh, less hubris, more uh, humility. Uh, but that's an argument for doing nothing. And doing nothing might be the best thing. I'm, I'm pretty confident, actually, in terms of foreign aid, that doing nothing is much better than sending uh, thugs money uh, or, or allowing them to confiscate money. So I have no problem with that as a, as a first approximation, that, that doing nothing is better than sending people money. But if we want to do a little better than that, do we have any guidelines? I mean, well, it's, a certain, it's a certain unsatisfying aspect to this, and it's not clear what empirical evidence would help us do better down the road. Well, one of the people that we interview is Bill Easterly. I don't know if you've had him we on. We have. Yeah, and he's... He's probably the person I would be would be my go-to person on on that issue, and he's very much in the trial and error camp. He has this distinction between searchers and planners. Right. So planners are people who try to, from a top-down, design uh, systems that are supposedly going to increase development, and searchers are people who start out with what's on the ground and look for small improvements. And um, I think. You know, I'm a strong believer in the searcher approach. Again, the main theme of this book is trial and error and this the, the superiority of this kind of searching versus planning. And um, Easterly supports I th- what I you know a sort of entrepreneurialism in foreign aid, and entrepreneurialism wound up being a major theme in the book. Uh, that the 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 person who tries an idea and then is going to either be successful or fail with that idea. Um, you know, the, that one person may not make a huge difference, but cumulative, the cumulative effect of a lot of entrepreneurs trying things is that a few of them will be spectacularly successful, some of them will be very successful, and then the ones that fail will just disappear and uh, not cause great harm. Whereas if you try something with a top-down plan and it fails, it will be a spectacular nationwide failure, and we've seen many, many of those. Yeah, Hayek said the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. And I guess the 
the optimistic or uh, positive story here is that um, is I think the there's a temptation to say, well, they have to figure it out themselves. They have to help themselves. And I think what poor poor nations, and I think what people have in the back of their minds, they have to work harder or get a better economic system. But I think what you're saying and what Easterly's saying is that you know, in, institutional design, the software part of the story, has to evolve there in a way that's congruent with their culture and their existing institutions, can't be imposed from the outside. If they have the freedom to try those things and fail and try again and succeed in other ways and other experiments, their their institutions will evolve to what's best for them. It's a very Hayekian story. Um, it takes a while, though. I guess there's a certain uh, impatience. And not only is there impatience, but there's a sense that you didn't accomplish it. I mean, there's, there's yeah. a cynical view of, of development that uh, development assistance is designed to make the donors feel good, yeah. and the donors don't feel as good with trial and error processes as they do with big programs that have big names attached yeah, to them. Yeah, that's true. Uh, comment, if, you, if you'd like, on microfinance, which was a recipe I think a lot of people touted and still tout as a software improvement. Uh, capital markets don't work very well in poor countries because of imperfect property rights and collateral. Hernando de Soto's spent an immense amount of time on this. And microfinance has been seen as a way to improve, that is, small loans, um, nothing grand, on a person-by-person basis as a way to jumpstart a poor country. Uh, recent empirical work suggests it maybe isn't as productive as we thought. Have you thought... Have any thoughts on that? I guess I haven't, you know, delved into that literature, so I won't, wouldn't want to make a strong claim one way or the other. What about China and India? Uh, they seem to have gotten something right. Do we know what it is? And it doesn't seem to be uh, exactly what, again, we might have thought were the institutional changes that would be needed. There's still a lot of top-down stuff allegedly going on in China. Indy maybe less so, but why are they doing so well, and how does that inf- how does that fit in with the story of the book? Well, um, India gets mentioned as kind of a negative example by William Lewis, who's one of the people we interview, because you know he points out things like the fact that you know maybe ninety percent of India's land doesn't have proper title, so there's huge inflation in the value of of the land that where you can get proper title. He points out that a lot, a lot of electricity gets stolen, which, of course, creates really bad incentives in the electricity market. Um, and there's still somewhat of what the, the Indians refer to as the license raj, that it's, it's, it's hard to start a business, operate a business, and get through all the regulations. So India still has a lot of bugs in their operating system. Uh, just fixing a few of them uh, has enabled them to make... Progress, but the the question is, will they continue to fix them and continue to remove those bugs? Uh, China is a, a case where you'll see economists arguing uh, kind of both sides of that. There are some economists who just look at that um, the sheer amount of power that is uh, invested in the uh, leaders of the Communist Party and say that cannot be congruent with a decentralized type of system. 
But uh, others look at it and say, well, actually, no, they really are allowing a bottom-up reform. There's a claim, I just read this in the Hoover Policy Review, that the difference between China and Russia uh, in the past 20 years is that Russia tried to impose economic reform from the top down, and that China's reforms really were the government adapting to what uh, first of all, what peasants were doing, peasants were trying to do privatized farming, and the government finally just said, okay, we'll allow that, and that creates some productivity increase in agriculture that frees people that can then move to the industrial sector, and the industrial sector was one where the uh, because of these economic zones, the government was allowing more, something closer to free market capitalism. So the argument in this uh, Hoover Policy Review article is that uh, China is actually have, has a bottom-up reform that the government is sort of tolerating and encouraging, and that that is working better that because the, it's reflecting the people's desires. And trial and error, presumably. And trial and error, whereas in Russia, people really were not uh, ready for the a capitalist system, and so what emerged was sort of a combination of a mafia-type system, which you know doesn't really protect property rights, and just a general resi- people's general resistance to the loss of their social safety net that they had under socialism. Do we have any idea how much capitalism there really is in China? I mean, do they use prices? How free are people to compete? Have any measures of that? Does anybody have any? Is anybody looking at that? There must be, but yeah, I, it's hard to get data on it. Obviously, it's a very it's not an open society. Yeah. It's yeah, and the, uh, one thing I've heard is that they you know they're not really free to accumulate capital. That the capital gets accumulated at you know at a government level and then gets allocated. And you wonder how that can possibly work effectively. Um, you know, it it goes against what what. You know, what we think of as capital markets needing to allocate capital to its best uses, uh, the notion that, that government would centrally allocate it and that you could continue to grow. So that, that'll just be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, you know, supposedly they have a very high savings rate. I'm not sure what that means in the context of that. It's, is it confiscated? I don't really understand it. The, um, no, I think there, there, there is a high pers- personal savings rate in part because – People, you, know, you have the one-child policy, so that the what used to be the uh, safety net for people growing old was having a lot of children. They, they kind of eliminated that, and yet, and there's no government social security system. So what you have in China is, um, you know, a strong incentive for people to save for their old age because there's, there's nothing, there's nothing else that they can do. There's no other way they can protect themselves. Arnold, people are myopic. They don't look ahead to the future. Don't you know that? That's why we have to have a social security system. (laughs) Um, Yeah, tell that to the Chinese. Okay. Um, Let's close by talking about trade. I think if you'd asked economists at various times in the 20th century what creates prosperity, a lot of them would point to David Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage. There isn't a lot of trade in your book. Um, what role is left in Economics 2.0 for the traditional topics of trade, comparative advantage, and specialization? Well, I guess I wouldn't. Le- I would just call that Economics 1.0. Uh, 
Uh, trade is a way of getting sort of in some almost a free lunch or something for nothing or more, you know more out of the out of resources, and it, it that hasn't gone away uh, as a way of getting more resources. But the economics 2.0 focus is on uh, technology. And it's sort of funny we sometimes um, sometimes to try to explain trade and the advantage of it. Uh, we try to use a technology analogy. So, you know, D- David Friedman talks about how we can grow cars in the wheat fields by growing wheat, shipping wheat overseas, and having the ships come back filled with cars. And uh, that is actually a more efficient way to produce cars than it than to manufacture them. Uh, so that's sort of treating trade as if it's technology, but the uh, the economics 2.0 is, is in some sense talking about how technology substitu- plays the role that trade traditionally played in economics of ana- allowing people to consume more with the resources they have. But isn't, isn't there an additional aspect of this that I think we also leave out of our standard principles of economic stories, textbook stories? When we talk about trade, we talk about uh, – England swapping uh, wool for wine with Portugal. And what happens in the modern world is multinational corporation builds a factory in Indonesia and brings all those recipes, all those ideas at no investment cost to the people of Indonesia, takes advantage of their low labor costs, but in doing so helps increase their standard of living. Yeah, the the, the advan- a big advantage of free trade in sort of the economics 2.0 world is exactly that it spreads ideas around. So, you know, when Walmart comes up with a better logistics system, that puts pressure on every retailer to come up with a better logistics system. So, trade has the advantage of putting competitive pressure on people to adopt the, the latest ideas. The, uh, the issue of how a new idea gets adopted is a big one. And we, we say in our book that the entrepreneur's role is to force this adoption because people resist change. I think, I think big companies resist change. My experience in big companies is you used to get a lot of internal resistance to change. And one of the advantages of wide open free entry and, and markets that allow small firms to grow is that they put the kind of pressure on large organizations to change that's needed in order to produce change. We're almost out of time. We are uh, at the end of the Great Moderation. That has ended. Um, During the Great Moderation, when the business cycle was thought to be tamed, a lot of economists started focusing on growth. And your book is really a a um, in many ways a compendium of what we've learned so far from some of the great uh, minds that have focused on that as well as the insights of the great minds of the authors of the book um, but now we're in a suddenly a very different world and I, there's a certain um, and I think about it even though everyone knows I don't like physics as a metaphor for economics uh, this idea of whether light is a wave or a particle. There's a certain schizophrenia in economics for me between the business cycle versus growth. So all of a sudden, 
we're focused on the business cycle where we are today in 2009. People are thinking about growth per se. They're not worried so much about poor countries. They're worried about themselves. And you can get the paradox of thrift argument that says savings is bad. And I, I just find um, it seems we can't seem to think about them both at the same time. What are your thoughts on that and what the future might hold for where economics is going to focus its energies? Yeah, I, I do think that looking at business cycles is, in some sense, taking your eye off the ball uh, because growth matters. And you know, Robert Lucas said that famous thing that once you start thinking about these large differences in standard of living over time, it's hard to think of anything else. And you know, measure if you measure the changes in consumption during a recession, they really turn out to be pretty small. Um, but people get frightened, or maybe government sees the crisis as an opportunity uh, to expand, and, that, and, and so you do get this focus. But I think the perspective of the book would be, first of all, yes, this too shall pass. Secondly, that we probably will get uh, a lot of things are going on, probably are increasing growth. That is, we're probably getting an acceleration in movement out of um, declining industries. And also people are going to have to be a lot more creative about how they start businesses and how they deal with human capital. I think the typical college student right now has to be thinking a lot more about what is going to be useful for a career than a few years ago when they just sort of took it for granted that they would come out and, and have some kind of nice job. So I think there's going to be a lot more creativity and a lot more thought into uh, how businesses operate, into which businesses expand, and into how people develop their own careers. And the net effect of that, I think, is actually going to be positive for growth uh, longer term. My guest today has been Arnold Kling. Arnold, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.